getting there? Okay. Okay, next one. Let's see if you can get this one. Who knows what this is? Raise your hand. That's, you don't recognize this from the movies, by the way? This is St. Basil's Cathedral. It's in Moscow. Now, let me tell you, anyone ever been to Russia before? Other than we have. Um, I don't care what people say. Russia is a third world country. We were there in 95 and it hasn't gotten any better. Um, but you see only in the movies this. And it's beautiful. It's right there in, in Red Square in Moscow and everything. And that is beautiful. And that, they, they keep everything nice there, but you go just outside of there. I mean, there are potholes that your car would fall in in downtown Moscow. I'm not kidding. They don't have the infrastructure, and, you know, communism has failed as a, as a system, an ideology. But that is St. Basil's Cathedral. Do you know who built that? Was it, what? Yeah, I think it was Peter the Great, right, or something like that? Anyway, I can't remember that part. So, all right. How about this one? I don't think you're going to get this one. Yeah, I can expect you to. This is a it's currently Christian Fellowship. This is where I served as an associate pastor, okay? It's fascinating. Look at the designs. There's a little cross right there and so on. Um, yeah, and so that's Kirtland Christian Fellowship, okay? Kirtland, Ohio. You would know Kirtland, Ohio if you were Mormon because when Joseph Smith was kicked out of New York, where did he land? In Kirtland, Ohio. There's a big church there, and it makes me feel good about the, the, the Christian church because they don't get along either, the Kirtland church. You go a mile down the road, down the hill, there's the um, Brigham Young version of you know, the Mormon church, and you go about half a mile down the other way, there's a, a little smaller uh, Mormon church that has something to do with the prophecy of land in Missouri. So they can't get along, and they split. <laughs> okay, but that's really what Kirtland is known for, a big tabernacle, and there are tours and buses that, that come there regularly. Okay? Let's see if you can get this one. I wouldn't expect anybody to. I wouldn't expect you to. This might help. Here's the inside of it. Does that help at all? National Cathedral in Washington, Westminster Abbey. What do you think it is, Angie? You don't know? Is that Notre Dame? It's one of the famous churches. I looked up the famous churches, pictures for these and so on. It is St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, Ireland. The inside tells you, there's been movies were shot in here. You can tell that, right? Remember seeing that? That's why I gave you the inside of that one. I didn't expect you to get it. It looks so nice here. It just looks kind of nice here, but just average, right? But the inside here is just obviously really, really. It's St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, Ireland. Okay? Anybody ever been to Ireland, by the way? You've been to Ireland? Well, I want to go there one of these times. Let's see if you can get this one. I doubt you will. This is a church that I came from. Remember I said we did a $2.5 million building project relocation? Yeah. That's the, um, yeah, the offices were over here, and there's a big screen of kids area, and the worship center in the back, and so all this area here was a big oversized coffee shop that we didn't really need, but you want it, and so it was way too big, but yeah. 
So that is uh, Crossview Church in uh, Grable, Indiana. Let's see if you can get this one. Notice the different structures and designs and everything. Anybody want to guess? You know this church. You'll recognize the name. That is Willow Creek Community Church. If you go through, um, what's the big airport in Chicago, O'Hare? You ever been in O'Hare recently? There are signs in that airport for Willow Creek Community Church. Did you know that? Because there's so many people have uh, come there to visit various conferences and so on. There, at one point in time, just an FYI to you, about 25,000 in attendance. This is just the South Barrington campus. They are down 57%, which is average for these big mega churches because of COVID. So they're down about 12,500. Churches everywhere are down in attendance. How about this? You know this name. I don't know if you can recognize the church. Anyone want to venture a guess? There you go, Westminster Abbey. It's Westminster Abbey. Of course, where is that? In London. Exactly. And that's where they, um, is that Mary? They marry the royal family there, or they, they pronounce them king or queen? I think so. In the Abbey. Uh huh. And the last one, you should get this one. Someone's already mentioned it. Look familiar, right? Notre Dame de Paris. Mm -hmm. Get the side view. Okay. There we go. Well, those are just name that church. So how many got at least two right? Anybody? Three? Can we get three right? You got one right, I'm hoping. Okay. <laughs> I'm really hoping you got one right. Okay. Now, okay, here's the point of showing all these churches here. When somebody asks you about church, what do they almost always ask? Where do you go to church? Right? Where do you go to church? And we tend to think of church as going to a place or a building. And it's only natural because this is the tendency, the, the, the thinking pattern of secular man. Let me show you. This is humanity's mandate. We'll talk about this for a moment here. Just listen to this. Um, actually, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We'll get our Bibles out this morning once again as we do every Sunday. This is Bible Chapel. So get your Bibles out in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. This is what we do instinctively, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. It is our mandate from the Lord. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 says, God blessed them, male and female, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what were we created to do? Only us, only humanity, male and female, to rule, okay? When Jesus Christ comes again, who will come with him in a second coming? 
We will. Dressed in what? And we are coming. He's coming to rule. And who will rule with him? Who will judge angels? We do. Okay? We're, we're rulers. But before we rule, we have to do something else. Be fruitful and multiply. F- subdue, control, fill the earth. Okay? That's our mandate. Okay? Now watch this. Turn to Genesis chapter 4, verse 12. Okay? Cain has killed Abel, and this is his curse. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a what? Wanderer on earth. Cain will never be able to settle down. All right? He's going to be a wanderer. All right? But watch this. What is the defiance of Cain? Look at verse 17. Cain does what? Had relations with his wife. What's he doing? He's being fruitful. He is multiplying, right? That's what we're created to do. And she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And what did Cain do? He built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. What was his curse? And yet, what does he do? He wants to settle. He builds a city in defiance to who? To God. And you're going to see this pattern here. And the history tells us that he, he really wasn't able to finish the city, that his son ended up finishing it because of the curse. God frustrated him, and he had to go on. He was going to always be a wanderer. But he tried to settle down, and he built a city. Now, another thing you need to know is that from the very beginning, you have Adam and Eve, and you have Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, and then God raises up another child for Adam and Eve, who? Seth. Seth is a symbol or a picture of the righteous, believing side. Cain is a picture of, or symbol of, the unbelieving side. So you have secular and religious, okay? So the line of Cain is that which is secular. And what we see Cain doing is defying God and building a city. They're building buildings, okay? And it's okay to do that for a while, but you're always supposed to what? Multiply. Fill the earth. Don't settle. Okay? Now, whereas, look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. While you're turning there, the earth has become so corrupt that God has already destroyed the earth with a flood. He wipes out and starts over. Okay? And what happens in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4? Well, now the Lord said, or they said, come, let us build for ourselves what? A city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be what? Scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So what is mankind, secular man, doing once again? Building a city. And what does God do? You know the story of the Tower of Babel. He confuses them by giving them different languages, and what do they do? They scatter. They go to multiply, fill the earth. The point is this. This is where it ties into the church. Whereas secular man or man builds cities, 
you'll find out this. God builds a nation of people. Do you understand that? Because in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, turn there, you just see this contrast in the book of, of um, Genesis. God calls Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Genesis chapter 12, verses one and two, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you what? Not a great city, a great nation. Did he have a place to stay, Abraham? He was always what? Wandering, okay? But he's gonna be making him a great nation and we know that those people would be who? The Jews, okay? And then eventually the church, okay? And it's a kingdom of people. And I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. You see, God blesses, God makes their name great so they can be a blessing. But if you look at the, the Tower of Babel, they want to make themselves their own name for their own selfish purposes. So when you start to think about from the very beginning, what is the church? It's not a building. When we say what, where do you go to church? Quite frankly, whenever two or three are gathered in his name, guess who's there with us? Jesus. Two or three can be together, they can take communion, and that can be what? The church, okay? So now let's talk about, well, what is the church? I got most of my information for this sermon from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, but the church is this, he defines it this way. The community of all true believers for all time, okay? It's a community of people, of true believers, for all time. Now this definition understands the church to be made of all those who are truly saved, okay? Remember Ephesians 5, 25? Just as Christ also loved the church, and what? Gave himself up for her, okay? So the church is applied to all who Christ died to save. And who did he die to save? People in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Let me explain. Because of his death and resurrection, God did what? He exalted his son to the position of highest authority in the church for the sake of the church. It says in Ephesians 1, and 23, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. This is the exaltation of Christ. After his death and resurrection, everything went back to him. At the fall of man, what happened? Everything went to who? Satan. Christ earned it back, and all went under him. And God gave him his head over all things to the church. And the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so he's the head of the church. Therefore, if he's the head of the church, he's the one who builds the church. It's done his way. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said this, I will build my church. And there, trust me, there is a great temptation within what I do within Christianity and particularly within pastors of how can we grow the church? How can we build the church? And we can tend to fall into church growth strategies. 
What we saw as a result of the pandemic was a lot of big megachurches that didn't exist until the 50s and 60s when there was church growth strategies applied that were based out of what model? A business model. We used to have at the, the Crossview Church, and it, the, the church I showed you, Christian Fellowship, when visitors came, we were diligent to get the information, and we had a crew of people that made cookies or, or cupcakes or whatever, or bread. And within the next day, a group of people were taking baked bread and goods from the church to their homes. It was meant to shock those people, to say, wow, these, these are really nice people. And then if they came back a second week, we were expected by the statistics to retain those people at an 80 degree percentage, 80%. And we did all that work, and it didn't do a thing, really, to grow the church. But it's what the church growth strategy is. What the church has done over the past you know, 20 plus years is they have entertained people, right? And of course, that's helped cultivate what? Create what? A consumer Christian. They, and a consumer Christian is one who simply consumes. You've heard me say this before, they have a, a hidden contract with the church. They're to be pampered, pleased, entertained. And if they're not pampered, please entertain, or their children aren't pampered, please entertain, what do they do? They go somewhere else. It's like a, a buffet line of churches that they, they try and choose from. Who builds the church? Jesus builds the church. And he builds it, though, through a cooperation with his people. Just listen to this. You might recognize this from Acts chapter 2. This is after Pentecost, what happens? Verses 43 and 47 47. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. Signs and wonders were what? Miracles, healings, words of knowledge, casting out demons, all that. So they were ministering using their gifts. They're doing their part. And verse 45, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all. So people are giving as human might have need. They were sacrificing, they were serving. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were sharing life together, eating food. And they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. So they were worshiping, right? Praising God. And this is the last thing, verse 47. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So who built the early church? The Lord did. There was our part, but the building, the growing, came from the Lord. Well, I want you to be very clear in this part, this next part. But the process where Christ builds his church, once you see, it is just a continuation of the pattern set in the Old Testament, where God calls his people together for worship. Turn your Bibles, go back to the very beginning, or, or go a few books over to Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you're in Genesis, continue on to the right. <laughs> Go to Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay? Chapter 4. Starting in verse 10. It's just verse 10. Deuteronomy 4.10. This is Moses speaking. 
And the Lord says through Moses, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. Okay? Now, why don't you focus on, is everybody there? Is the word assemble. Now, in the Hebrew, I can't even pronounce it. It's Q-A-H-A-L. But that's translated in the Greek, ecclesiazo, ecclesiazo, which is a form of ecclesia, which means what? Church. Okay, so in other words, he's saying, go to church, get the people to come to church for me, assemble the people to me, come to church, that I may let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Now, this is exactly what the writers of Hebrews says of the great cloud of witnesses, okay, in Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, see, those are Old Testament Believers, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Samson, David, etc. Okay? They're included within the church. So it's the church, true believers, obviously, of all time. But they were called to assemble, to go to church in the Old Testament. We're called to do what? Assemble here, which is what we're doing this very morning. Okay? And it includes... Old Testament believers. So when you come to church, where are the great cloud of witnesses? Or who are the great cloud of witnesses? What does it include? Everybody in chapter 11 of Hebrews, which was Abel, Noah, Abraham, David. Okay, that's part of the church. Now, so what we're happening in the New Testament was happening in the Old Testament. Now, why do people go to church? A 2018 Pew Research Center study listed the top reason the U.S. adults give for choosing to attend or not attend religious services. Can you see this? These are the reasons they give for a, a, attending service, attending church. To become closer to God, so children will have a moral foundation, to make me a better person, and for comfort in times of trouble or sorrow. Now, look for the reasons why they don't. Either they're not a believer, so they're not going to come to church, I'm not gonna go to church because I do what? I've heard this a lot before. I just practice my faith in other ways. I know I don't need the church to do what? To grow and to be godly and to be a Christian. Or I haven't found a church or house of worship I like. Why do we go to church? I mean, what are the biblical reasons to go to church? Okay. Well, simply put, I would say it would be these. The Bible. You're called to fellowship. And this is a huge problem that the church is dealing with right now. Because in March of 2020, I sat here at the last service knowing that the following week there'd be nobody here. What were we going to do? So Frank and David and I scrambled and they were able to get up an online service for us. Purchase the music and everything. And it was weird that first Sunday preaching to nobody, but that's what we had to do because of the pandemic. Okay. What happened to the church as a result of that? When we opened back up later in 2020, were people coming back to church? No, well, why not? Because it was more easier, it was more comfortable, and there were legitimate reasons for your health if, at that time because of the pandemic, I get that. We're out of the pandemic. 
all the lies that we were fed about everything and so on, we're out of that, okay? But is this what it was before? No, it is not. So if you are staying at home, if, if we are live today, I know we had trouble getting up, on, up live, but if you're live today and can be at church, let me just flat out say this to you, you're in flat out sin. You do not forsake the assembling together. You need fellowship. You were, man is not created to be alone. You need to be in church. Now, if you have a legitimate health reason, then use you know, internet, use online to worship. That's great. But for anybody that watches this, if you are not in fellowship, and this is part of fellowship, that's a command from God. Do not forsake assembling together. You're in sin. You forfeit the blessing of God in your life when you don't assemble together. Now, obviously, you see here, to observe the sacraments. What are the sacraments? Communion and baptism. Okay, this is where it happens. It's in the church. What else do we have there? It's simple, to worship God. These aren't in any order. I'd put worship first. I just put them down this way. But you, know, you come to church to worship. And then you come to church to, to give. I will never forget, I think I've shared this with you before, when we were ministering with Campus Crusade, we were exposed to such great speakers. And we were full-time work in Bible studies and sharing our faith and hearing great speakers and whatnot. And we would go to church on Sunday which was a misnomer because, and by the way, focus on the family, Campus Crusade or, or crew or Young Life or Youth with the Mission. They're called what? Parrot Church. What the heck is that? I was in that environment. If you are assembling together and you can take communion and baptize any, we baptize people not in a church setting, you can take communion anywhere, that's the church. This parrot church in church it's a way that the church has separated to to protect money, to protect their money. Because you don't want to give to parachurch organizations, some churches say. But we'd go to churches and they would be disappointed, to be honest with you. People weren't moving forward, they were just kind of going through the motions. And we would complain as staff members kind of going to church on Sunday. We were already tired as it was from all the spiritual work we were doing. And it was when this older staff member just kind of confronted us one time at the staff meeting and said, listen, you're going to church to receive. You got it wrong. You've got to go to give. You have to go to give. You have spiritual gifts that you're expected and to be accountable for to use. Use your gifts. Give. So these are why you come to church. Now look at these reasons why people are coming to church here. It's a good thing to become closer to God, but you... The church was never designed for and will always fail, in my experience, in number two. So children have a moral foundation. Are the youth that have been raised in the church staying in the church? No, they are not. Why is that? Because you, the father and the mother, have disobeyed the Lord, and fathers particularly, you are not instructing your children in the way that they should go. Ephesians 6, that's your responsibility. Okay? So it's, you know, they, they come here, so churches know this, so they have these 
We had the, I could have showed you a picture of this big, like Noah's Ark type thing we had at the church. It's a sign in and all this stuff and they have playgrounds and slides and games and all this stuff for the kids to come there and, and whatever. And, and you youth go to these and they play basketball and dodgeball and all this stuff and they get a little bit of the Bible and it hadn't worked. It does not work. That's not why you come to church, right? I just gave you four biblical reasons, but people come for this. To make me a better person. This is why you have things like your best life now. I want to become a better person. I don't want to become a better person. A better me is ugly. <laughs> it should be to become more like Christ. You see? You come to church to be more like Christ. So you see how off we are. And of course, everyone's going to come in times of trouble or sorrow. Whenever we're down, we want picked up, and then when we start feeling better again, what, what always happens? You leave. You stop coming, okay? So those are the four reasons why we go to church right here, okay? Now I want to talk to you about a concept called the invisible, invisible church. You need to understand this, okay? The church in its true spiritual reality, okay, is a fellowship of believers that are invisible, what do I mean by that? Well, by invisible, I mean we and I, nobody can see the spiritual condition of a, of a person's heart. I don't know that. I don't have that ability. I have a hard enough time understanding my own heart. Now, we can see those who outwardly attend the church, as I see right now, and there are certain outward evidences or, or behavior of a, of a, that show an inner spiritual transformation but nobody can see into the hearts and know their, their true spiritual condition except who? God. Only God can do that. That is why Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows who are his. Okay? The visible church is a church as people on earth see it. We see it in those what? Pictures I just showed you, right? Think of the buildings we just identified. In the visible church, which is this church right here that you see, there are true believers who have professed faith in Christ and give evidence of that faith in their everyday lives. There are also people who are not true believers who are in the visible church. There are probably people here today that are not believers. And I don't know who you are. Paul wrote this, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 to the church of God which is at Corinth. So what's he, who is he writing to? And it's a church, and there would have been a location that they would have met at, and that's the church of God at Corinth. That would be the visible church. <laughs> Watch this. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Now who is he talking to? The invisible church. So he's talking to the visible church and the invisible church. With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now I just read you 2 Timothy 2.19, that the Lord knows who are his. Here's the context of this passage starting in verse 16. And here we see the visible and invisible church. Verse 16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, now he's identifying people, Paul is to Timothy, are Hymenaeus and Philetus. 
men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So where are these people? Where is Hymenius and Philetus? They're in the church. They did what? They strayed. He said that the resurrection had already come. They upset the faith of some. And then verse 19, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows who are his. So in the church, there are people, the visible church, believers and unbelievers, okay? Now, that's the invisible, invisible church. The church is also local, and it's universal. Now, the New Testament applies the word church to just a small group of believers in a house, Romans 16, 5, and greet the church that is in their house. Now, we get all focused on what on today's church? Attendance, numbers, right? There was a small group of people in the time of the early church in Romans 16, 5 that met in the house. That was a church. But the church also refers to an entire region of churches, Acts 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. So you see, it's not just one specific location. It can be a, a large location. It can be the church of the United States of America. That's the church. Now, is there a difference between the church and the kingdom of God? Okay? You ever think about that? Is the kingdom of God and the church the same? The answer is no. Here's what it is. See, the kingdom of God is the rule of God. And where does the kingdom of God begin for us right now, at this present time? It's in the hearts of men. It's the rule of God in the hearts of men. And you know it when someone comes to Christ and they repent. They change their behavior. They have a new ruler. Okay, The church is simply the society of men. This is according to George Ladd. And Ladd goes on to give five points that clarify the kingdom and the church. I just want you to see these real quick. But the church is not the kingdom. Okay, The church is not the kingdom. We preach the good news of the kingdom. We do not preach the good news of the church. Understand that? The kingdom creates the church. The gospel of the kingdom or the message of the kingdom is preached. What happens? People come to faith in Christ. They are now in the what? Body of Christ. The body of Christ is what? The church. So the kingdom creates the church. But the church, when you become a believer, you witness to what? The message of the kingdom. You witness to the kingdom. Therefore, the church is the instrument of the kingdom but the church is also the custodian of the kingdom. The church has been given the keys to the kingdom. Okay? So the kingdom of God is simply the rule of God in the hearts of men, and that's the message that we preach. And when people come to faith in Christ, they then enter the church. Okay? Now, We've already talked about this a little bit. What is the purpose of the church? Because if you ask people what is the purpose of the church, I'm sure you would get a, a variety of answers. But in essence, again, from Wayne Grudem, it is to ministry to God and worship. Okay, we're there to worship God. It's a ministry to believers. 
You're to, to nurture them, to build up the body of Christ, to, to mature them, okay? And then there's the ministry to the world. We take the message of the kingdom and we share it through evangelism, through acts of mercy, Matthew 28 and 19, okay? Now everybody turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five. Verses eighteen to twenty-one. This perhaps summarizes best just the purpose of the church. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay? We are in the ministry of what? Reconciliation. We tell sinners that they can be reconciled to God. And that's the only reason we're here on earth. If you lack purpose in your life, well now you know. If you're a believer, you're here to reconcile people to God. Think about this, this is the only reason why you're here because everything else everybody could do, we would do better in heaven. Wouldn't there be better or pure fellowship and better and pure worship and better and pure lives? Everything would be pure and better in heaven. But we're not in heaven right now, are we? We're here on the earth. We're here because we have this ministry of what? Reconciliation. And how are people reconciled to God? Well, people are reconciled and only reconciled to God through the preaching of the word of reconciliation. Who, who has been given this message of the kingdom, this message of reconciliation? And you are the church, okay? Is the government given that resource? Are Buddhists given that resource? Are Hindus given that resource? Are schools given that resource? Is an unbelieving world given that resource? No, it is given to the church. And that means this, that the, the universal church and the local church, we'll just say the local church is the hope of the world. We're the only ones who have hope because what has been given to us is the ministry of reconciliation. Within that ministry is the, the word of reconciliation. We have something that nobody else has. And we're told to reconcile people to God. And this is where the church has so screwed this up. What we do as a church is instead of sharing the word of reconciliation, getting involved in the ministry of reconciliation, we pay missionaries 
to do that for us. Right? But whose responsibility is it? It comes to the church. And who is in the church? If you're in the church, raise your hand. Then it's you. So when's the last time you shared the, the gospel, the message of the kingdom, the word of reconciliation? This is not something that is to be private, okay? It is to be shared. And the only way that people will come into, get to heaven, will enter into the kingdom, is through the message of the kingdom, or the gospel message, the good news. But this is why we must know the message of reconciliation, which is, remember I went through that actually about two years ago, or three years ago, the gospel message, we were training you in how to share your faith. This is why we must know the message of reconciliation and guard it from other false messages of reconciliation. Here is 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 and 14. And just two words stand out. This is Paul's word to Timothy. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. What were the sound words that he heard from Paul? It was a gospel and, and, and right doctrine. In the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Which treasure has been entrusted to us? Gospel of good news, the word of reconciliation. Guard it. Retain it. Now, if you have to retain it, if you have to guard it, what does that imply? What? You have to know it, yes, but what else does it imply? If you have to guard it, what does that imply? It, it can be twisted, distorted, changed, altered, okay? And we'll get into this a little bit more in a, in a minute here. I want you to talk about what are the marks of the church. Well, this is the Roman Catholic position on the marks of the church, and it's this. The visible church that descended from Peter and the apostles is a true church. In a sense, yes, that is true. But why do they, they, they mention Peter here and then the apostles? Because through Peter became who? Where it rose to power? The popes. Okay? Now the Protestant position, you can find this in John Calvin and in uh, Martin Luther, is basically this. Whenever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered, communion and baptism, according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. So in other words, if the church is purely preaching the word of God, people are hearing the word of God, lives are being changed, practicing the sacraments, that's the church, okay? That's the church. Now I wanna go back to what we were talking about, guarding, retaining the sound, the standard of sound words, guarding the message. What happens when the church compromises the word of reconciliation? In other words, what happens to the church when it does not hold to sound doctrine and gets carried away by false doctrine. Well, everyone turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter two. This is the last verse we'll look at. Okay. Well, the second to last verse we'll look at. 
Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. The church in Pergamum shows us what happens when the church compromises. The church in Pergamum was an actual church. It is symbolic of churches in every time that compromise sound doctrine. There are seven churches that get seven letters from Jesus. Those seven churches are symbols of, uh, represent of church in every generation, okay? Church of Ephesus lost its first love. Church of Smyrna was a suffering church. Are there churches suffering today? Yes, there are. Church of Pergamon was a compromising church. And the angel of the church in Pergamon, the angel is a pastor, right? The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yield fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Okay, so there's a pretty good church, right? But look at verse 14. But have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So there you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. So what's in that church? False doctrine. They're polluting, watering down, changing, introducing air. There were, there were false teachers there. It says, therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So in other words, judgment happens if you don't deal with false doctrine in the church. So let me give you a recent example of this. This is a picture of, do you know who that is? You want to take a guess? It's Harry Emerson Fosdick. Sound familiar from my Sunday school class? In 1923, a liberal Christianity was gaining major popularity. Liberalism retained the vocabulary of traditional Christianity, and it's clever they did this, but they changed the meaning of the terms. We're doing it today. What did equity used to mean? It's, you have equity in your house, okay? Now what does equity mean? Equal outcome, we'll get to that in a moment here. But salvation with liberal Christianity was not primarily about personal salvation, but about social change. Man's core problem was not his own sin, but societal brokenness political corruption, and economic oppression. Sound familiar today? Christianity was modified by Harry Emerson Fosick, the man you see there, and the liberal Protestants to remake the public order, to not, but not to rescue the damned sinner. Fosick was born in May 24th, 1878. As a young boy, he claimed to have been born again. See, he knew the lingo. But even as a teenager, he rebelled against the born-again movement known as fundamentalism. He developed an early interest in theology and chose to pursue ministerial training at Colgate Divinity School, where he was influenced by William Newton Clark, an early advocate of the social gospel. And upon graduating from Colgate Divinity, he continued on to Union Theological Seminary. So this man is being taught and raised at where? Seminaries, which are extensions of the church. They're going to be teaching... Doctrine. 
1919, Fossick was asked to become associate pastor at First Presbyterian Church in New York City. Presbyterian Church was born out of what movement? Reformation. That goes through who? John Calvin. The Wesleyan Church and Methodist churches go through who? Martin Luther. These guys were believers, okay? But now we have this guy going to this First Presbyterian Church, Harry Fosdick. Is he a believer? Well, no. But do they know? Because he is in the church. He's a visible church. But he wasn't part of the invisible church. And on May 21st, 1922, he preached a sermon that came to define him. Shall the fundamentals win? So the fundamentalists win. In this sermon, he proclaimed that there was a great battle in the church between the fundamentalists and the modernists or liberals. He decried the fundamentalists as being intolerant. Does that sound familiar? For demanding adherence to doctrines that science, reason, and a modern world could no longer sustain. Now, what happens when you get the, a liberal theology or liberal religion? Well, the world steps in. John D. Rockefeller enjoyed this sermon so much that he had 130,000 copies printed and mailed to every Protestant pastor in the nation. Because of his desire to modernize the Christian faith, Fosdick soundly rejected belief in a series of traditional Christian doctrines, including the following. Jesus Christ's virgin birth, the inerrancy of scripture, and the literal return of Jesus Christ. He wanted to modernize, modernize the faith by making it attractive to and compatible with modern times and modern sensibilities. We would say it's what, when the church has, in the last few years, followed after the social gospel and got involved with all the writing and all of the equity and all of that. At heart, liberalism questioned the nature of the Bible and denied its inerrancy, infallibility, and authority. And liberalism denied that the Bible is the word of God and trusted, and instead insisted that it contains just the word of God. And once scripture's authority had been denied, a host of doctrines would necessarily fall in its wake. And when Fosdick battled the fundamentals of his day, he battled nothing less than traditional or conservative Christianity. Fundamentalists were those who insisted upon the key tenets of the historic Orthodox Christianity, what they defined as the fundamental doctrines of the faith. And amidst this great uproar, theologian J. Gresham Masham wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. And in it, he wrote this, what the liberal theologian has retained after abandoning to the enemy one Christian doctrine after another is not Christianity at all but a religion which is so entirely different from Christianity as to belong in a distinct category. And Fawcett was by no means the only liberal theologian of his day, but he was the one to gain the widest acclaim and the broadest platform. Fawcett was on the radio waves at the time and in bookstores taking his message to the common people. His voice extended through his radio program, the National Vespers Hour, which was broadcast in northern and eastern United States, and through many best-selling books, which eventually sold in the millions. On two separate occasions, of course the world would love him, and it did, he was on the cover of Time magazine. And if Fosdick was the man who popularized and legitimized liberalism, 
we can rightly say that subsequent liberals followed in his footsteps. Men like Norman Vincent Peale, Robert Schuller, and yes, Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr., a theological liberal in his own right, regarded Fosdick as the greatest preacher of the century and a prophet. Did you know that? Fosdick was a proponent of ecumenical Christianity, pacifism, and civil rights. Fosdick was a visible proponent of social gospel Christianity. And Fosdick, what do you think his influence was on Martin Luther King Jr.? It was, it was pretty deep, pretty immense. His mark is apparent in King's sermons. King repeatedly echoed Fosdick's call that the Christian church should be a fountainhood of a better social order. And that any religion that pretends to care for the souls of people but is not interested in the slums that damn them, do slums damn people? No. The city government that corrupts them and the economic order that cripples them is, in King's word, a dry, passive, do-nothing religion in need of new blood. But Fosdick's influence went even further. Though the fundamentalist modernist controversy began within Presbyterianism, it soon spread to other Protestant denominations, to seminaries and other religious organizations. It eventually led to today's division between mainline and evangelical churches. Now you recognize those, right? What are mainline churches? Be Methodist churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches. Okay, you get that, mainline denominations. Then there's evangelical Protestant churches. That's what this church is. This church was part of a mainline and I think eventually grew out of and became an evangelical Protestant churches. So about half of today's mainline Protestants consider themselves liberal now. Influenced by who? Fosdick. Now turn your Bible to 2 Peter 2. This is the last verse we'll look at because we're about done with the sermon here. This is what the scriptures say about false teachers. This is what happens when the church does not retain the sound words of doctrine and does not guard it. Because we're talking about a completely, totally different gospel message. Grace need is not to be saved from your sin, it is to change society. Second Peter chapter two, verse one, but false prophets also rose among the people, just as there also will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Verse three, their judgment from long ago is not idle. What does that mean? But their judgment from not long ago is idle. The judgment is still going. This was predicted. And the destruction is not asleep. The destruction is happening. Verse four, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, what is that referring to? The fall of man, or before the fall of man, what happened in heaven? 
before the fall of man, what happened in heaven? A third of the heavens, angels rebelled, right? And they went with Lucifer and they were cast out. And what was reserved for them? They were committed to hell, the pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. Verse five, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. Going ahead, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, for what? Sin, homosexuality. To destruction. So we see that there's judgment coming. There's judgment. There's judgment. Reduced that to ashes, having made them an example of those who, live, who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. He rescued Noah, right? In a corrupt world. He rescued Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows how to rescue the, un, the, the godly from temptation. But look at the last part of verse 9. And to keep the unrighteous under what? Punishment for the day of judgment. So these false prophets, these false teachers, what has been reserved for them? Judgment, okay? If I can rephrase in, in, in one sentence, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, that the hottest places of hell are reserved for false prophets and teachers because they lead many astray. They're there saying, here, come this way. It's wide. It's easy. And there's a small group that says, no, this is a narrow way. This is hard, but it's the way to eternal life. And yes, there are degrees of suffering and there are degrees of, of heaven of blessing. We'll get into that, but yeah. And so, yeah, you think that, that these false, the Baal prophets and so on, yes, they let people straight, they'll suffer. In our time, in the hottest places of hell would be people like Harry Fosdick. And why? He went astray. He was in the church and he led the church astray. But this continues even to today. If you leave this church and make a left, and you go up our street, you're going to know some signs on the street. Okay? Go towards the Game Farm Park, keep going. There's a sign for a pastor, you can read the name if you want to, I'm not going to mention it, who was running for state representative of the 30th district. If you look him up, and I did, you'll find that he's a pro-choice, meaning what? Keep in mind, he's what? A pastor, and he's pro-choice, meaning he is for abortion. And he wants to end homelessness. So this pastor is for the killing of innocent children. Is that biblical? No. And he wants to end homelessness. Is that biblical? Well, no, it's not possible. It's a nice dream. But what did Jesus say about homelessness? The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. There will always be in this fallen world homelessness. So to have a goal of ending homelessness, I mean, to help homeless, yeah, but to end it, that just, it's not even biblical. But this man is what? A pastor. This man is a member of Democrats for Diversity and Inclusion. Okay, now what's diversity? Diversity is, means this. Let me, let me bottom line it for you. If you are a white male, raise your hand. It means that you will never go forward in your ever be promoted in your work. I'm, I'm listening to it, watching it. There's a certain company in Auburn that makes airplanes. 
the number of female managers compared to male managers in a people of different color. So diversity basically means we will not promote the white male, and it also means that we will also persecute and not promote the white female. But you're a female, you're a little bit better than the male. It means that if you are a, a, a Christian and a Republican, forget it. They want to diversify, they want diversity. They want to put people of, of, of color. It doesn't matter if you're qualified. They want to put people who are gay, people who are transgender, all of that in these positions. And it's happening. It's happening. That's what diversity means. So this man is, 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 is for that. He's on the Democrats, what did I read there? Democrats for diversity and inclusion. Now what does inclusion mean? What's that really mean? We want to include everybody, include all behaviors, except Republican or conservative or Christian. Okay? This man is a pastor. What does the Bible say about homosexuality and lesbianism and about transgenderism? It's an abomination to God. Should this man be on those boards? Absolutely not. He's also on the board of Washington Equity Now Alliance and the city of Seattle's Equitable Communities Initiative Task Force. Now by equity, we don't mean equal opportunity. What do we mean? Equal distribution of resources for all. That's another form of what? Socialism. Okay? How does a pastor, which is a symbol of he pastors a church, and the church is what? The body of Christ. So he's a representative of or an ambassador for Jesus Christ. How does he stray that far? He's clear product of what? The social gospel, which was started and popularized primarily by who? Fosdick. Exactly. This man doesn't hold to sound doctrine. Folks, there are great blessings to the world, and the church is what she is supposed to be. But as you can see, and because the church is the hope of the world, and the the Inverse is true, and there are great consequences when the church strays from her purpose, and you can see it everywhere. So this is why you need to understand what the church is, what the Bible says about the church. And so I want to ask you this question, we'll close this morning with this song, why do you come to church? Well, you come to church to worship, amongst other things, which is why we're going to close the song, Heart of Worship. This is why we're here. So you would stand with me. I'll pray. And we will worship God. A biblical reason to come to church. Amen? Father, bless this closing song and the rest of our day we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.